Hello, Norm. Hi, Barbara. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. The heat of summer is upon us. It certainly is, with a vengeance. <laughs> we have a really interesting episode. Do you want to tell our listeners who, to whom we are speaking? We are speaking with Terry Hron, who's quite an amazing uh, artist. She was an artist-in-residence in Halifax, uh, uh, one of the Suddenly Listen-sponsored residencies that we offer. Uh, and she was also an artist in the very enjoyable and and uh, memorable concert that we gave in, in March. So she's a good friend and a really fascinating artist who is approaching music from from deep places, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She touches on all sorts of really interesting ideas having to do with music and what it is we're doing. Yeah, and how it ties in, maybe more than most artists, how it ties in with the world around us, yeah. you know, both societally and environmentally. Mm -hmm. So I hope everyone enjoys this episode with Terry Ferran. All right, let's go. You are listening to New Musings on New Music, where Norm Adams and Barbara Pritchard converse with guests from the world of contemporary art music. We are exploring some of the fascinating ideas found there and trying to demystify the wild and wonderful music. Today we get to speak with Terry Fraun. Uh, I wrote down a bunch of words on my notes about Terry Fraun, and the list is super long. Uh, I wrote down composer, performer, uh, recorder, player, computer musician, arts worker, even ceramicist. Uh, you know, there's a broad array of things we can talk about here today. Terry, why don't we start? Or hi, first of all, hi Terry. Hi there, Norm and Barbara. Hi Terry. Uh, why don't we start where we usually start, and that is. Tell us how you became the person that you are today, the artist that you are today. Tell us a little bit about your, what your journey was that brought you to this point. Well, um, I guess it was a pretty eclectic journey. And um, at every step of, the, um, of that journey, I feel like I was making decisions kind of based on whatever felt right at the moment. Um, I don't think I really grew up thinking that I was going to be a musician. Um, but uh, I did play instruments as a child. Um, I started playing the recorder like everybody did in elementary school. And I was just very lucky because um, my elementary school music teacher was a recorder player um, in Edmonton, in Alberta. And um, that's pretty unusual to have somebody who had actually been to the Netherlands to study this, this, um, this instrument. And so I remember taking classes at lunchtime and with a little group, and then eventually also taking private lessons. I also played the piano and briefly played the violin. I think that I really became interested in the recorder and generally in music more specifically when um, a recorder quartet came to Edmonton to perform the Amsterdam Luki Stardust Quartet, famous quartet at the time, and um, I played uh, for a master class with one of them and it was just such a incredible experience. I felt like um, for the first time, somebody was telling me all these things about how to play this music um, that I had never even considered before. And it seemed like a secret realm that, um, that I might be introduced to. I was encouraged by, uh, by that person to, um, to go to the summer workshop, to the Longy School of Music for their international Baroque uh, workshop uh, and uh, that started a sort of five or six year run of going to these summer early music workshops that are 
organized uh, in North America. There was also the Amherst Early Music Workshop. And um, it was just so fun to go and spend uh, two weeks in Boston as a as a 15 year old kid going there all alone and being thrown into chamber music and with all of these like professional musicians, it, it just felt, I felt very, um, you know, very much like I was uh, in a very special world. So that really made me super interested uh, in pursuing this, this strange instrument and this music thing in general. Um, because uh, I was a good, a good student and um, there could have been a lot of other uh, options, but this was the most mysterious option. And so I think that's why, um, that's why I went for it. And, um, um, and I really set a goal for myself to go to um, the Netherlands to study, um, to study recorder. So, um, while I waited to have enough money to do that, I, um, I did my bachelor's at uh, the University of Alberta uh, in musicology and art history. Um, there wasn't any really a place for me as a recorder player in that department, in the music department. They were very enthusiastic um, about having somebody who was uh, really keen to learn things, but there wasn't actually a program. So they were very kind and, and set one up for me where I could basically just do anything I wanted. And I really loved being able to take lots of courses in art history and in history in general. Um, and just some absolutely amazing and very eclectic courses. Um, that's where I also started to uh, study composition. Um, I was really lucky to be able to have my first um, lessons in um, as a baby composer with John Astasio and Howard Bashaw and some really lovely people. And um, I was amazed that, that, that you could just learn how to compose. You could just take a course and then you, by the end of the course, you had written some things and people would play them for you. It just, it all seemed kind of incredible. Um, and then I did uh, end up in Amsterdam at the conservatory there. And I thought originally to just stay for a year, um, but ended up spending 10 years in the city. Um, not all of them at the conservatory, thank goodness. But, um, uh, but it, was, it was pretty uh, challenging at first to suddenly be, th be thrown into a huge recorder class. There were at least 25 of us in the recorder class and there were three full-time teachers, um, which seemed just incredible. The level of playing was um, really stunning and I felt like, um, like, like I kind of didn't belong, you know, coming from um, what felt really like the boonies um, and studying with, uh, with these colleagues who uh, had so much more experience than I did. Um, and eventually I also became interested in uh, more composition and improvisation through, um, uh, through wanting to, to actually get a degree there. So I, I enrolled in this degree of in contemporary in those masters in contemporary um, music uh, based on non-western techniques and when I think back on it now I feel very critical of, about the way that we were using these non-western techniques there's really a lot of appropriation and a lot of it was especially Carnatic music music South Indian music um, and just the way that it was explained to us in the way that we were um, encouraged to use the materials that we were taught um, just seems kind of crazy to me now. But um, at the time, it was wonderful uh, to be able to um, to be able to go to India and study there. And I had the really wonderful opportunity uh, of studying there with um, uh, a percussionist, a mridangam player uh, called B.C. Manjunat, 
who is a really wonderful player and who plays a lot with um, Western musicians and also dancers. He's one of the main collaborators of Akram Khan, who's a big name in the choreography world. And um, he was able to really um, communicate with me about how this music worked and to try and make these bridges um, in the way that we conceive of music. Uh, and so that was just a, a wonderful experience. And I think really, um, really, again, put me back into the, the grasshopper position of, um, of being a, a, a real beginner. Uh, I feel like I keep throwing myself back into being a beginner. And um, so I threw myself back into being a re real beginner by, by studying there uh, for quite a few months with, with him and with another flute player. And um, then I was just uh, um, also had these colleagues who, who were from the jazz side of the conservatory and they were just incredible improvisers. And for me, improvising was so difficult at, in the beginning. I had no idea what it meant, and uh, I felt absolutely lost. Um, I, w I remember I would, I would write down a few notes on, a, on some staff paper to put on my stand as a kind of security blanket that if all else failed, I could play those <laughs> notes. Um, I was just necessary. Without that, I was just unable to even um, to to even just play in a in a combo with with these wonderful musicians. Um, and they were also much louder than I was. I was starting to play in these groups that had drum kits and um, saxophones and electric guitars, and um, and so that's when I started to amplify my instrument. And as soon as I started amplifying my instrument, it was a very slippery slope down which I slid readily into the world of um, all kinds of guitar pedals and effects um, because I just saw everybody else uh, who was amplified also would use these. And um, so when I, when I graduated, I was playing a lot of music with drummers. I had a duo with a drummer um, for a, quite a long time and with other guitar players and just immersed myself in that scene, in the um, free improv scene in Amsterdam, which, um, which is a really wonderful uh, and nurturing place. Um, and as I was just um, playing more and more with pedals, uh, it got to be very heavy. And I was um, trying to tour with all of this equipment. It was kind of impossible. And, um, and uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Peter Hannon, who had been a mentor earlier in my youth, um, uh, advised me to start uh, playing around with Ableton Live. And so I started doing that at a time very early at a time when most people who were serious about computer music or using their computer to make music in a kind of contemporary classical setting were all using Macs MSP and um, I was just too impatient and all I wanted to do was to get things up and running really fast and um, Ableton Live allowed me to do that and within the space of a year I had traded in my pedals for for just my computer. And it really opened up a lot of other possibilities, especially more compositional possibilities, where I would start setting up patches that had um, more uh, structure built in um, over time. And um, I was really getting to an impasse about, um, about how to move forward on that because um, I had really no instruction. I was just going at it alone. Um, and I feel like it was before the YouTube time when everything ended up on YouTube. There were a lot of things on YouTube, but not like now. And um, I really thought, oh, I should, I should probably, I should probably start to get some more real knowledge on this stuff. And I was also ready to come back to Canada after, after the 10 years in, in the Netherlands. 
And so I, um, I was lucky enough to be able to get on the graduate study funding gravy train and, um, and, and do my, doc my doctorate in composition in electroacoustic composition um, at the University of Montreal. And um, so I did that. And uh, my, my research was on um, uh, composing for specific musicians, because at the time I was in deep in the, my second commissioning project where I had been commissioning other composers to write music for me um, with live electronics. And that, that was kind of my way to learn how people did live electronics. And I, uh, in the course of my doctorate, I was writing music for other specific performers. And I was really interested in what people bring to the compositional process as performers, as their specific idiom and trying to find ways to theorize that and find ways to write that into the score so that the performer for whom something is written is somehow also recognized in a more concrete way. Um, yeah, and then I guess um, arts worker, uh, arts worker is just a, a breadwinning kind of situation. Uh, I've never thought that playing the recorder was going to um, put food on the table or a roof over my head. Uh, I was always going to have to do something else. And that something else um, quite quickly became organizing things. Um, I started organizing things in the Netherlands already, started doing festival organizing first as an assistant and then um, taking over the productions. Um, a really good friend of mine uh, who was recording all the Mozart symphonies hired me as their uh, orchestra manager. That was a real plunge into completely other skill set that I had no experience for, um, but was wonderful to be able to do. And, um, and it was also a plunge when I took my current position as the uh, executive director of the Canadian New Music Network. Uh, I was looking for a fairly small and um, brainless admin job at the time. I really wanted to concentrate on my creative work. Well, that didn't quite work out the way I thought it would. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I'm still trying to find ways to balance the um, creative and um, arts work equation. Um, I think things are probably going to shift for me in the next year or so um, to focus a little bit more on creative work again. Um, but I see these things as cycles. Uh, and we've got to we've got to go with the flow on that. Um, but I'll leave it there because um, I feel like my life story is possibly not the most interesting part of this conversation. So I what I I, I find it very interesting, and what yes, I yes, yes. find most fascinating, and how it differs from from my upbringing as a musician, and how and probably Barbara's upbringing as a musician is. It seems like your your grounding was always very broad. Like you've just had a you've had a big net all the way along. You know, suddenly you know you go to to the Netherlands as a as a Renaissance or Baroque recorder player, and you emerge as a you know an Amsterdam free improviser, electro, you know, processing live. Uh, how did that? I mean, I don't even know how that happens. I mean, I was when I went to school, I practiced cello concertos and 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 orchestral excerpts <laughs> i didn't i didn't even i didn't have the brain space or the space or the or the the uh environment uh around me to introduce me to the to all of those things so so tell us tell me like have you always been open as you're focused on one thing you're open to lots of other things is that I think so. I mean, as a kid, I was doing 10 zillion different things. I was a horror to, for my parents driving me around. Um, like uh, now when I think about it, I was like a, a little princess being driven to all of my many, 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 many after school activities, which I did um, really intensely, uh, all of them. Mm. Um, while not thinking that I would um, have, you know, do that professionally, I was 
really into gymnastics. I was really into dance. I was playing my instruments multiple hours a day. Um, I don't, you know, you have so much energy. Um, and I think so I've always done a lot of different things. Um, and uh, I think I'm also just very interested in, in all the details and all the context around things. I know that one of the things that really uh, made me m much more interested in being a musician was when I started taking music history lessons. And suddenly there was a whole story around everything and there were relationships and the music was in some kind of a context. And I think that's why I was also drawn to early music because there's so much to discover. You have to, it's like a mystery. You need to figure out how to make the music work. Um, and perhaps also why I'm not at all attracted to high modernism where you're told everything and everything mm. is on the page and you have to do it just like that. And I feel like an automaton. Um, I want to, uh, I want to feel like my investigation and my relationship to what it is that I'm studying um, makes a difference. And um, and also, there's just so many really interesting things in the world. <laughs> I remember being so thrilled by all the courses that I took um, in my undergraduate. I took a course that was on, for example, one of my favorite courses ever was the history of um, the philosophy of science. So you've got three things, history, <laughs> philosophy, and science, all in the same course. And Good it bang was for just, your buck. It was just... Um, uh, the course was designed basically to blow our minds, and it did. I mean, we, um, and, and I just was always fascinated by how people get into all of these details on things. And I guess I had an affinity for that because my maternal grandfather was a, was a poet and essayist and translator and somebody who... Um, just did all of that work. And it was never just about um, what was on the page. There was always so much more around that. Knowledge was something that you had to seek out. It wasn't an easy, an easy answer. And um, so I, I was always, I guess, taught to uh, value that highly. And so, so I think I sought out things that were like that, things that required a lot of labor. And um, most of my artistic work also requires a lot of labor. Maybe not in the execution, lots of improvisation in the execution, but often my scores will have like handmade things or my electronic um, processing requires, you know, so many steps. Uh, before the end product or doing some process, you know, hundreds of times with tiny little details uh, all done by hand. I really appreciate that. I think, you know, embroidery is like one of my absolute favorite art forms because it's just so laborful. I don't know something about that, um, the crafting and the, and the, um, and just the, the depth of something is, mm. is really something that attracts me a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's clear when we hear your music. Uh, you and I got to perform together last March. Well, we, we got to work together uh, first in the fall when you were a, a Suddenly Listen artist in residence, but then in April, I guess, we performed a new piece of yours that had multiple, there were no notes, but but there were multiple different scores that we were reading all at the same time. And there was complexity and work that was behind what we had on our music stands and what we had rehearsed. I think that that's fascinating. I want to uh, ask you in particular about the ceramics. Norm mentioned them briefly. And one of the pieces I watched of yours online set of pieces called, I think it's called Medusa Selfie. And you're obviously playing, looks like ceramics, bowls and perhaps something else in that. And I'm just curious how that came in. I guess it's just one of your other 
resilient activities. Can, can you tell us some more about that, the ceramics and where it's taken you? Yeah, so the ceramics really did, didn't start as something that I meant to do on stage. It started out as a therapy. Um, I very much needed to do something creative um, and fun. Uh, when I was at just finishing up at conservatory in the Netherlands, uh, and I didn't didn't have the cash for um, a real therapist, so I thought I'd just do something that was really fun, um, and that's when I started to do the ceramics and um, did it as a fun activity for a very long time, and when I picked it up again moving to Montreal when very luckily there was a ceramic studio that opened at the corner of my street. It happened really kind of haphazardly that I created a set of bowls, actually the bowls that you see in the opening of Medusa Selfie. I had made them as, uh, as colanders. Um, there were just a set of nested colanders because I I had made a whole bunch of colanders before. I feel like it's one of those things that's really nice to make out of clay, just to wash small fruits in and so on. And these ones, I hadn't put the feet on yet. Uh, they were just kind of rounded on the bottom. And um, uh, it was kind of rolling around on the table and something was inside it and it started rattling. And I realized it was making a sound. And so then I started spinning this, I think it was a small stone or something inside the bowl. And I realized it had a, a pitch. And since there, these were nested bowls, each of them had different pitches. And so I thought, oh, this is really cool. And that's when it started. Um, so it was really just a playful thing. And I decided to add a ceramics um, aspect to Medusa's selfie because I had um, been thinking about Medusa as a mythical character and I don't know how much you know about uh, Medusa's story but it's a really it's a really um, unfortunate story from the perspective of rape culture and the Me Too movement which were also kind of all happening around the time when I was writing it um, but Medusa's story has always been told from the outside, and I was thinking, what would have it have been like to be Medusa, which is why it's a selfie. And I was also thinking about whether Medusa would petrify herself by um, by looking at her own image. Um, and I was also thinking that the really the big curse that she was uh, that. The situation that the curse really brought upon her was the fact that she couldn't have any friends because every time she would look upon someone they would turn into stone and so i thought oh she probably had a lot of relationships with rocks <laughs> so i had the idea of creating rocks that would sound and i proposed this to a residency in japan I really wanted to do um, a Japanese anagama wood firing. And um, there's a residency at Onishi in, in Japan where they it's really all about preparing f and doing an uh, anagama firing. Anagama is a type of long kiln, wood, wood firing kiln. What I didn't know is that Onishi, this little village, is at the, the crossing of a number of rivers and it's really known for its rocks. Um, and uh, that's where they collect these really, really large rocks for gardens. So people come to Onishi to pick their garden rock. And, um, but the rocks uh, on the riverside, which are of course much smaller, are also really beautiful. And so I decided I would wrap the rocks with clay um, and then let them take on the shape of that clay. And then I would cut out the rock uh, and, and sort of make the glue the pieces back together, well, stick the pieces back together and fire them that way. So there are all these rocks with slits to, to put some objects inside. Um, and that's why we play those rocks in the piece because it's sort of thinking about how, how Medusa would be surrounded 
by rocks and that that was the only relationships that she was probably able to have and that you know the this uh, curse of shame that she is um, subject to is really depriving her of relationship so that was kind of one of the one of the sort of unspoken but i was hoping obvious things about that piece it sounds like with all the background work that you do for your for your compositions for your creations it sounds like that would be a, a tough commission do you do you work on commissions sometimes or are most or most of your pieces that you've been making your own projects that you've kind of devised and supported and, and built from the ground up? I do get commissions. It's pretty rare. It just seems so specific what you're working on. Like you, you obviously get a deep interest in something and then make a piece about it. And if somebody's saying, get a deep interest in this thing, maybe that doesn't work out as well. I guess. I mean, sometimes the deep interest can be for the performer that I'm writing for and some kind of thing about our relationship. A lot of my pieces are about that. I wrote a series of three pieces. Um, the cycle is called Sharp Splinter, and it sort of meshes together my relationships with specific performers and my family relationships um, and this archive I have of, of my family. Uh, the archive includes letters and tapes, cassette tapes that my parents sent back to Prague um, during the Cold War and received from the family back there and also films that my father took super eight films um, of our childhood and um, lots of landscape photography <laughs> filming also um, and so uh, the first piece in that in that uh, cycle is Ahoy Ahoy uh, written for Luciani Cardassi and um, she commissioned that piece. Luciani uh, is an incredible pianist, especially incredible in how precise she is able to be with fixed media. When I first saw her perform, um, she was performing Synchronicities by Davidovsky and also another piece by Chantal Laplante and her precision with the tape uh, was just really boggling and it just made the piece work in this incredible way and playing with tape was something that at the time i hated because i felt so straitjacketed by the tape and i didn't really know how to make things feel and flow naturally but Luciani was just so good at it and she loved doing it. So then the piece also became about synchronicity and how to how to really um, how to really utilize that um, aspect of her performing capabilities. Um, and the score is all designed in that way so that she can really um, perform things uh, with cues from the tape, uh, which is all written out. And then the second piece was a piece for Andrea Tiniak, who is a violin player. And uh, I had heard her playing the Isai Sonata, um, I think Sonata number two. And that sonata is full of Bach uh, references and all kinds of references. So that piece also became a kind of dialogue piece for us. And so a uh, love song for MAD, um, which is uses all of these texts uh, from letters in my family that I'm reading um, and tapes of my sister when she was a toddler. Um, combining that with the Isai Sonata and all of the things that it's referencing. Um, so it creates a whole kind of bank of material and then the third piece in that, in that cycle is Mali Velki Siet, which means small, big world. And that one was for three pianists, um, Luciani Cardassi, Rosabel Choi, and Catherine Dowling. And each of them are very different uh, performers. 
um, but all play contemporary music, you know, so beautifully. And each of them has a different relationship to scores and different ways of wanting to be in relation to scores. And so these were, it was a set of miniatures. Um, and none of them are really difficult. And I was sort of trying to make something that would be kind of like, kind of like microcosmos or Schumann's forest scenes, these sort of short pieces that are also kind of pedagogical in a way, like they're not so hard, but um, they're really beautiful, short little um, pieces with a lot of character. And, and it was a lot around childhood and we talked a lot about childhood and we workshopped all three of us together and um, talked about the relationship to the their relationship to the instrument as children and so so in that sense in those pieces the relationship and the the studies of the performers themselves um, and using that as inspiration for the work the scores that I've seen of yours haven't had notes written down were those were those piano pieces composed with a on a staff with traditional notes or not yeah so those use conventional notation mm -hmm. um they are video scores um the the three pianist piece which can be played by one pianist um uh they're video scores but what appears at the right moments is usually uh something on staff notation in the video in the video yeah it's just so that um you don't have to have a timer right. um but you see things at the right moment so are they playing off ipads or yeah the video? they're usually playing off ipads although i have used i've uh, i have used phone scores before but those do don't usually have staff notation those have other types of cues there um but with video scores as well so it i you know, it's a, I, it's something that I have developed a lot is the use of video scores. Um, because I think it's also a really good way for people to be able to practice with electronics because it's all built in. So you don't have to try and sync yourself with your timer and the, the um, you know, the soundtrack. It's all integrated and it makes people practice with the soundtrack more. Um, because my experience, both as a performer and as, as a composer performing for others, is that often the electronics are like something that they add at the end and play on top of as if it's, you know, some background noise. Mm. And they don't necessarily develop a real relationship to them. And they can't see the way that the, the notation and the sound are actually completely integrated. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting what you say, Norm, about um, staff notation. I've been trying to wean myself off of staff notation, or maybe now I did for a while. Now I'm now I'm reconsidering that position again, um, and to use it for what it's best suited for. Um, but as a way to try and sort of um, step away from at least for some time, step away from um, Western European music definitions of score. And uh, it's very easy to fall back on staff notation because it's so ubiquitous. And it's almost so ubiquitous that we can't see any other options. We can't even imagine organizing music in any other way. Mm -hmm. And so by limiting myself in that way, I have come to f figure out different ways of communicating ideas in and about sound. But sometimes, uh, of course, I just write staff notation because it's the most suited for the commission. Right now I'm writing a short piano piece for Susanna Shimurdova in Edmonton, who's a Czech pianist living in Edmonton. And it's all through composed in, in Western um, European staff notation because that's what the commission was. Um, so I'm not going to, I'm not dogmatic about anything. <laughs> I just, um, 
I was more interested in that, in the commission, or it wasn't really a commission, it was a project that uh, suddenly Listen was involved with. Um, I was interested in activating the performer's um, interpretive capacities in a different way. Mm. What's your relationship to, like, the outcome? I know that, you know, when we have when we are presented with a score that is through composed, that the composer can have a, an idea of what it's going to sound like. But if we are using a video or an image as a, as a score, any manner of possibility can result. Talk to us a little bit about that, the idea of creating something, but not really being sure what it's going to sound like when it comes out. I'll just sidebar by saying, one time, uh, uh, someone told me about a, a composition professor that said, just be prepared to be disappointed because you're going to write this music and it's never going to sound the way you think it should sound. Somebody's going to be interpreting and it's not going to be perfect. So just be ready to be disappointed, which I think is really sad. So. Oh, so much to unpack with that statement, Norm. I don't even know if I want to open that kettle fish. I mean, just what is perfect? Um, yeah, expectations are really interesting. I think with staff notation, we have, um, and we've created a whole conservatory style Western European music uh, education system, which requires of composers to be able to hear or ideally be able to hear something in their mm. minds mm. when looking upon a score and that's considered mastery um i don't reject that but i just think that it's a narrow definition i think it's a very specific definition and i admire the dedication and skill it requires to get to that level of um training and um, ability but I don't think that it I don't think that it describes all of the potential of what a score can be and also what an outcome can be obviously um, uh, one of the dangers of writing through composed music in western staff notation is that the tools that we have currently to make that are so good um, that we start to get you we, we can use it to play back what we what we're composing and we get used to what it sounds like and then when a real person plays it with an instrument that is different from the one in the sample bank it can be disconcerting um, especially if you're writing something very complex um, in terms of rhythm or pitches um, that would require that person to spend a huge amount of time uh, learning the piece. Uh, and for myself as a performer, I have learned those kinds of pieces. I remember spending, I don't know how many hundreds or maybe even thousands of hours <laughs> learning Nono's music or um, Donati, this piece by, by Donati that I played that was just so difficult uh, technically, um, and I still couldn't play it um, probably as well as a machine could. Um, and now when you listen to a lot of movie soundtracks, they're actually not even, they're just computer generated and that technology is only gonna get better. So um, personally, I don't necessarily feel the need to write that kind of music. There's a lot, a lot of people doing that, and doing that so much better than I might or could ever. Um, so when I make something, I'm not necessarily interested in a specific outcome. I'm actually really curious what this set of inputs will generate um, in the mind, heart, and body of the people who are interacting with it. 
and it's always a discovery. I think when I'm when I'm making music with my computer uh, and transforming sounds, I'm going at it intuitively. This sound I like, this sound not so much. What is it about this sound that I don't like? Oh, it's this parameter. I'll just tweak that. Do I actually like it now? Mm. Yeah, I'll tweak it some more. And maybe at the end I'll be like, no, actually it's not good. Um, and I like having that, that possibility to work with other people in that way too, to be like, oh, did that work? Did that not work? Often we don't have the time, unfortunately. We, that's not part of our, um, of our economic situation as musicians. We're not actually given that much time to work together on something in that way, which I think is a real shame. I'd love to be able to just spend hours tinkering with another musician uh, or many musicians and, and just uh, try things out instead of instead of bringing something that's already baked. And just so taken with the idea of you playing the recorder, I mean, I love all this other <laughs> other stuff you're doing, but uh, I grew up in a household of, of people who um, played recorders. We had a recorder ensemble that my parents made us play in. You know, anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love the recorder. My... I can totally geek out on the recorder for a long time. <laughs> but. Um, our, our, some of our listeners will know that one of the motives behind Norm and me starting this podcast was a discussion we had about uh, I don't know, two particular pieces we heard each other play of traditional Western music and how much we loved that music and why on earth did we then continue on to new music. Um, but I, I'm, I'm thinking about the recorder and I'm just wondering, do you have a favorite early music composer? Is there a particular kind of uh, I don't is early the music even the right word anymore I, I, I don't know what the terminology is but, are you uh, still are you still active in early music now that's another question you could tack on there yeah I play occasionally I play uh, early music uh, and I'm always uh, surprised that I can still play that music and I feel like I'm even getting better at it by not playing it, um, but just by playing my instruments so much and really exploring their, really their, all their nooks and crannies. Um, early music uh, is a through line in a lot of what I do. Uh, I recontextualize a lot of early music in the pieces I write. Medusa Selfie, for example, was all built on music written by women or anonymous composers. I think when we look at anonymous, most of the time people assume it must have been men, but um, I'd like to offer that it might not have just been men. Um, we don't know. And, um, and so, um, but, but to recast that music uh, in a contemporary setting with maybe some electronic enhancements or um, experimentation with it. Um, as for favorite composers, I hate to default to Bach, but I really love playing Bach. Uh, just practically speaking, it is uh, great technically and um, always uh, just such a good workout. You know, it's mm. just that great workout that you can give yourself that makes you feel good. Although recently I've really gotten into C.P.E. Bach, Bach's middle composer son, uh, who worked at the court of Frederick the Great, who was a who was not a recorder player but was a flute player, um, very avid flute player, and he was also um, a mentor to um, Friedrich's uh, niece, Anna Amalia, uh, who was a composer. And um, C.P. Bach is, a, I think, a, an underrated composer. Uh, I feel like he's so funny and so experimental. He's really at the cusp of a new style, and he's really experimenting with that style. Um, some pieces come off better than others, but I think that's the sign of a great composer, somebody really willing to take risks and do crazy things, um, try things out, 
and he has a really, really funny, 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 funny piece for viola bass recorder and continuo, which is possibly one of the funniest pieces for recorder. And after that, I would say that there's a lot of earlier composers uh, that I also really like playing. I really like playing divisions um, on a ground, and there are so many collections of grounds. Um, that's just basically folk music, I think. I mean, they're attributed, uh, and they're they're usually you know Mr. Simpson's ground or all of these. Uh, various grounds that you can just uh, improvise over in there. They'll give a few examples to get you going. Um, I really like to practice those also as a way to keep myself sort of in that mindset of, um, I don't know, I, I can't really play an eight-bar blues, but I can play divisions on a ground. So it's all a matter of context. I wish there were, you know, jams in the park where people would just like be like, oh, let's play such and so's ground. I'd be like totally into that. Like a <laughs> but no, Maybe it's all these like project. <laughs> it's all these tunes that I don't have much reference for. And um, and because I play uh, instruments in all kinds of different tunings, I have a very bad uh, ear for matching pitch because I have never I just never know which pitch I'm at. And so um it's yeah. interesting i i uh I, i'm still waiting to find the right people to jam with in the park right yeah, oh, yeah. using the, the the ground fake book which you are going to publish. the ground fake book you know yeah. there are many of them that were published especially in england that was very popular at the time and um i'll just say Another one of my very favorite composers, uh, and this is a wish I'm putting out into the universe. I just love Hallborn and his five part music, some of the most beautiful music in existence uh, for instruments. At the time, there was a lot of vocal music, but this is five part vial music that's uh, playable on recorder, often with a voice as well. And that stuff is just so beautiful very difficult to play on recorders because it's all about tuning um everything it's just all about tuning and so it takes a it takes a good ensemble five good recorder players to meet and um to make it happen so it's not something that's been in my um in my life for the last few years but every time i get an opportunity to play um Elizabethan five-part music. It's a joy. So back to the present, what have you got, uh, what projects are you working on right now and what can we uh, see coming down the track for you? Well, I'm really trying hard this week to finish um, what, I'm, what I call my mini opera. Right. Um, which is a, a piece for two singers um, and multimedia. They're two solo scenes um, written for uh, and with uh, Helen Pridmore, uh, amazing Canadian soprano, and Jennifer Beatty, uh, really beautiful um, American mezzo. And um, Helen is um, bringing to life the Solstice Queen, which is a sort of um, retelling a scene in the life of Titania from A Midsummer Night's Dream. But instead of being written uh, from the perspective of uh, Shakespeare, it's uh, from her own perspective as the Queen of the Night, um, speaking to her acolytes, the fairies. And um, Jennifer is uh, the mermaid, uh, who we know from Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid. Uh, and she as well uh, gives us a glimpse into her life, which is much less tragic and um, in the throes of romantic love as depicted in those stories um, and much more powerful sea creature beautiful sea creature 
so they um they we made uh beautiful recordings of helen and jennifer in forests and waters here in quebec which are all uh, edited together and then there is um, a score that they have made with lyrics that have translations into english because they are singing in a fairy language and in a mermaid language <laughs> So I'm just finishing that up, last edits of the demo, and that will be premiered in uh, next year here in Montreal. So that's really exciting. It's a project that started before the pandemic and really got waylaid in a, in a very <laughs> difficult way by, um, by that cut in our, in our lives. Mm. Um, so that's something that's just finishing. And um, let's see, well, I'm writing that piece for uh, Susanna Shimbrutova, which is an adaptation of one of my very early pieces, which I like very much and has a really fun rhythmic component. Then I'm also doing quite a lot of writing. I started writing more again this year, writing articles. I wrote a couple of articles, both for Circuit Musique Contemporaine and for Music Works. I'm writing my second, I just finished my second article, uh, first draft of it, still got to massage it, on Julie Richard, who's an amazing person here in Montreal, a Haitian-Canadian performer, composer, activist, curator, um, femme extraordinaire, uh, who has made a first adaptation of parts uh, of uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois's Tom Tom, an epic journey of the Negro, um, an opera written in 1932, first opera probably written by an African-American woman composer. It was a huge production at the time. 25,000 people went to listen to it at the Cleveland Stadium in its opening weekend. Wow. The piece was subsequently completely lost and forgotten and has only recently started being played again. And a full score is not available. It's only, there's only piano reduction of, of some parts of it. Uh, other parts have uh, full orchestration. And it, so it's just incredible. Uh, it's, a, it's just an incredible story. Uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois in general uh, is an incredible person to know and look up. And Julie's work uh, with the community to bring this back to our um, attention and enjoyment is also really incredible. So it's been really, um, really fun to to see this work and to learn more about it. I've just keep my mind keeps being blown. I mean, how is it possible that this work is not um, is just not out there? In considering how huge it was when mm. when it first came out. I mean, when we think about it, Porgy and Bess has been played, um, was written five years later and was premiered at the Met Opera, I think in the mid eighties and had f 60 performances of that first production and was went into production again for box office records uh, at the Met in 2019. And that's a story of black life written by three white men. So I just don't get it. I mean, I get it, but it's just, it just so shows everything about our society at the moment. And it's so exciting to be at a period where we're starting to recognize all of this and to make some real changes, I hope. Mm. Yes, yeah. Amazing. I think we're at a good time. We can, you know, we can bookend it with changing the world yeah. Um, Terry, it's been really great to hear your story and to hear how your brain works a little bit, your amazing brain. Um, 
I'm assuming that we can find or our listeners can find examples of your music on your website. Is that correct? Yep, my website or um, on Vimeo. Uh, you can find uh, more of the uh, multimedia works there. But the website has a lot of things, not the very latest things. It's, you know, like most artists' websites, a little bit behind the times uh, as we run to catch up with everything. But hopefully soon more new things. We'll post links, all the yes. links we Yay. can find. <laughs> So thanks again. Thanks again. Thanks, Terry. Really Thank you so much, guys. We'll be talking to you soon. Yes. We'll hope to hear some of your music out in the East, but all over the place even sooner. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Excellent. You've been listening to New Musings on New Music. Check our podcast website for links to music and more information about our guests and conversations. Don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and podcast news. Suddenly Listen acknowledges the support of Arts Nova Scotia and the Canadian Music Centre in the production of this podcast. Thanks for listening.